From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Tregilio is in the house. Grab the phone. Start dialing. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We're going to pay for the phone call. It's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we've got a number for you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program and handling our social media efforts today. And Matt Gubinski is screening your phone calls. And uh, our host, as he is every Monday, the slightly sniffly Father John Tregilio. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing fine. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe more than a little s- slightly sniffly. <laughs> yeah, I had some kind of weird throat infection. Yeah. But nothing COVID. Yeah, well, there you go, and uh, and we've 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 put a uh, we've put a virus screen in place between. <laughs> That's a lie. I made that up. Um, but anyway, Father John is taking one for the team, and he's here to answer your questions today. So pick up the phone and give us a call at eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six, and keep Father John and his health in your prayers. Uh, Gary writes in, do you know without a shadow of a doubt, Father John Tregilio, that God exists? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know this because St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century explains the quinquavia, the five ways of proving God's existence. So from a purely logical, rational perspective, we can establish the fact that there is a God now, the other aspects of God, that he's three persons in one God, or that um, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, these are things which are revealed truths that we have to accept on by faith. But we can know by human reason alone that there is a God, a supreme being, prime mover, necessary being, and so forth. So I can say with certitude, I know there is a God, but I have to say I believe in the Holy Trinity. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Karen would like to know, why did St. Joseph have to die? It's obvious that he died sometime between when Jesus was 12 and 30. If Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead, why not his foster father? It would have been easy, (laughs) right? Or was it the loss of a parent... Or was the, the loss of a parent needed for Jesus to experience yet another earthly reality? I've never heard anybody speak on this subject. Okay, well, that's a 
good question. First of all, St. Joseph had to die because Jesus had not yet uh, died for our sins and so forth. He had to wait for um, the act of redemption, which took place on Good Friday. Just like Adam and Eve had to wait, St. Joseph had to wait. Uh, he was not preserved from death because death is a consequence of original sin. So the only two people who did not have to die would be Jesus and the Blessed Mother, but um, obviously our Lord embraced death to save us from our sins, and as St. John Paul the Great uh, commented on many times, even though it's not a dogma, he believes it's good sound theology that Our Lady willingly embraced death to follow in the footsteps of her son. But everyone else, because of original sin, we have the penalty of death. And even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, he died again. <laughs> He's not still walking this earth. He had a second death, and so his body's waiting for the resurrection. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Steve wants to know what would happen to the church if the Pope developed a severe case of Alzheimer's disease. Ronald Reagan was isolated from the public for the last 10 years of his life. If something like this happened to the Pope, what does the church do? Well, <laughs> right now, our only um, means of dealing with that is to make him comfortable, um, take care of his needs, but there's no way of deposing or removing a pope, even if he is, suffers from dementia or has severe Alzheimer's, uh, goes into a coma. Um, we certainly pray for um, a peaceful, happy death, but you cannot remove a pope from office. He's pope until for the rest of his life, unless he willingly resigns. Now, I believe I've heard it said that uh, Pope Francis has issued a document or signed a document that says if he is incapacitated, uh, whether mentally or physically, then his resignation would um, come into effect. But that's something that each individual pope has to do himself. It's not automatic. It's not part of canon law. And uh, But I did recently read that somewhere, so that might be the fact and the case with uh, Pope Francis. But until then, um, you know, there's nothing you could do. You can't declare him incompetent because uh, his office is something that's part of his being until he resigns or dies. Uh, you know, Father John, in your travels throughout the years and in dealing with seminarians that come to you, from various parts of the country, you're probably uniquely qualified to answer Larry's question. He says, why does each diocese set the age to receive confirmation? Why do some parishes take it even further to require activities and hours to attain the sacrament and other parishes within the same city do not? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't have a good answer. <laughs> um, there's something called subsidiarity uh, in which... Uh, those things which can be uh, decided at lower levels, it's better to have it done that way. Uh, you know, it's something that we, you know, in terms of federalism from the political standpoint here in the United States, but in terms of Catholic Church, um, the universal law, which is in canon law, certainly gives jurisdictions their own right to make decisions. So whether it's the Episcopal Conference here in the United States, the USCCB, or the individual bishop in the diocese, or he leaves it up to the pastor. So certainly like the the service hours that some parishes have, that can be in many cases 
determined by the by the individual pastor. The age of confirmation is decided uh, by uh, the the bishops themselves. Um, you know, we're they're always hoping, and I don't know if they ever see that day where the whole United States could be on the same page in terms of the age of confirmation. But even with the Holy Days of Obligation, you have a variation. Uh, I'm here in Maryland working, and Thursday's day, uh, 10 miles up the road in my home diocese of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, we still have it on the, you know, the 40th day after Easter on actual Ascension Thursday. So um, there are certain things which are done at a regional level. Um, why? I think, again, the, the, the idea of keeping things as local as possible. Is it always a good thing? Not necessarily. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Three lines open for you at 833-288-3986. Barry writes in, can God love one person more than another? Does God love St. John more than St. Thomas, for example? <laughs> this is a good philosophical question. Um, in one sense, God loves everyone uh, equally in the sense that we're all made in his image and likeness. And yet at another level, because uh, the amount of love that we receive is like the amount of grace we receive, the more we uh, cooperate with it, the more we can receive. And those who love God back and uh, participate in that love can certainly receive more of it. I certainly believe that of all the created beings um, that God has made, Our Lady stands out as the most beloved, but that doesn't mean he loves us uh, in an inferior way. Um, I think it means that, you know, you can get closer to the Lord. All those great saints, the mystics, certainly make that clear to us that uh, there's a universal love that God extends to all of us, and then there's that particular personal one that is contingent on uh, our reciprocity. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Cecil in California, Roger in San Antonio, Peter in Dayton, Ohio, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls at 833-288-3986. You could also send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Uh, be sure to join us for EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Prudence Robertson keeps you informed and educated with the latest news and truth on abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and the culture of death on EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. And we can send you EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly directly to your email inbox every week. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 
unfettered access to a seminary professor, Father John Trujillo, 833-288-3986. First up today is Cecil in the great state of California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Cecil, thank you for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, and I've I fathered, I followed Father Cagilio for many years, and he's very clear in his explanations and very thorough, and I really appreciate that. So I wanted to ask him this question, which is, uh, given that in heaven there's no time and space, time or space continuum, that uh, whereas in earth there is, prior then to the incarnation of Christ, did Jesus have a body? Now, I did ask that question to a priest who said, well, his body was present, but it wasn't manifest. And he said, but that's a philosophical question. But he didn't unpack it for me. Maybe you could help me with that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have explained it that way. Uh, that's um, a little more, um, I don't know, difficult. Uh, certainly it's true that God exists outside of time, uh, time and space, because he is eternal, However, in terms of Jesus' humanity, his human nature, that is, has a beginning. I mean, certainly before the Incarnation, his human nature did not exist, his human body did not exist. It was made in time because his human nature is created, was created by God. But his divinity, his divine nature, is eternal. So there was no beginning or end uh, to his divinity, to his divine nature. So prior to the Incarnation, Jesus' human nature or his body was uh, what we call in potentia, in, in potentiality, in the same way that you and I, before we were conceived in our mother's womb, we only existed in potentiality. We didn't exist in actuality. We were just possible. Um, now, because God exists outside of time and he's in an eternal now, uh, from God's reference point, you know, it's, it's difficult to explain how things happen because we're on a chronological timeline, but, but God is not. Yet with Jesus, who's the second person of the Trinity, uh, yeah, it's he had a beginning in his human nature, in his body. Um, would not say that it... Because you want to get a vo avoid what uh, Plato proposed, where there was this world of universals that exist uh, prior to us existing here on Earth, which is a different existence. Uh, more Aristotelian is what the the church uh, embraces, and so it's just that it was uh, potential, but not uh, actual. Thanks, Cecil. That help? Yes, that helps a lot. I think, uh, I mean, obviously in his foreknowledge, he would have known what he would have looked, what he's going to look like, I guess, but it doesn't mean that it was totally manifested. Well, again, that's not a word that you like, but yeah, I, got, I think I got it. <laughs> Eight yeah, it's very conceptual, but I think you're on the right track. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. A couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls. We head next to the Republic of Texas. Roger's a first-time caller in San Antonio, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Roger, thanks for the call. You're on with Father John. Absolutely. Good afternoon, Father John. So my question is, my question is, we know when Jesus died on the cross, there was two thieves on either side of him, and one went after him about save us, and the other one says, how dare you? Do you realize this is the Son of God? 
something to that effect, right? I'm I'm sorry, Father. I I'm not I'm not real in tune with what was actually said between the different gospels. But the idea that Jesus says um, basically tells the the one uh, that you'll you'll be with me in paradise today, and then we pray and we understand that when Jesus died, he went to the dead or into hell for and, and rose again on the third day to open the gates of heaven. How does he uh, reconcile that for me? He goes to the dead for for however long before he he's risen from the dead, but he tells on the day he dies on the cross, he tells the one thief that you'll be with me in paradise today. Okay, uh, yes, to, to understand that first, we like we our previous caller talked about time is different from the perspective of God because he doesn't exist in time. So when Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise, does not necessarily mean the same 24-hour chronological uh, concept as, as we look at it today. But when Jesus died on the cross, uh, at that moment, uh, mankind was, was redeemed. And there's a beautiful icon that the Eastern uh, Church uh, has where Jesus is on the cross, and right at the moment of his death, they show underneath the crucifix on Calvary, there's Jesus breaking the chains of Adam and Eve who were who were stuck before they could go to heaven. So his descent uh, into the dead, or the, the hell of the dead, uh, we typically say uh, took place on, on Holy Saturday, but it wasn't a chronological thing that it took place 24 hours after his, his death. It took place after he died. So uh, this day could have really meant that on Good Friday, the good thief, or St. Dismas, as he's often called, uh, did go to heaven on that same day, because uh, at the moment of death is when the human race uh, was redeemed, but his going into the dead, or his descent to the dead to uh, release all the just who were waiting, um, that doesn't mean that they necessarily were the first ones to go in either. Um, the, the good thief could have been the first one in. I mean, it doesn't matter what time they got there, the fact is they, they, they all arrived at heaven eventually. God bless you, Roger. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Um, we got an email from Nancy. She says, I thought Jesus and the Father were equal. In John fourteen twenty eight, you heard me say to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Nancy wants to know how that works. Okay, well, that's an excellent question and something we hit upon here at the seminary. In terms of Jesus in his divinity as the second person of the Trinity, he is equal to the Father. He, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share, share the same, uh, not similar, but the sh- same divine nature. They, they have the same divine intellect. They have the same divine will. All three know the same thing. All three will the same thing. In terms of his created uh, human nature, uh, in his createdness, Jesus, you know, uh, <clears throat> he is the obedient Son, and he doesn't relinquish his uh, equality with the Father, but as in terms of his created nature, it is subservient uh, to the supernatural 
reality because God is all-powerful, all-knowing. So Jesus' humanity is subservient to his divinity, and yet in his divinity he's equal to the Father. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Annie writes in, I've been led to believe that a natural marriage is more than just mutual permission to perform the marital act, but involves the intention of both parties to form a union oriented toward the procreation of children. A union formed for merely economic or legal reasons with no procreative intent would not be a true quote-unquote marriage. That said, one traditional view of Mary and Joseph's union was that she was entrusted to him for protection and provision in what was intended to be a sexless, childless union. This seems irreconcilable with our natural law understanding of marriage. Is it acceptable to think that the union of Mary and Joseph was a quote-unquote marriage uh, in the legal sense, sufficient to pass on inheritances like uh, kingship of David, but otherwise not a true natural marriage? Uh, Well, in terms of the way we look at marriage today from a very uh, canonical sense, um, a human sense, um, the openness to children is one of the requisites for it to be a valid sacramental marriage. One must intend a permanent, one must intend a uh, faithful, and then a God-willing, fruitful union, uh, at least the openness to that. Uh, if one or both does not want children, then that would make it invalid. In terms of the marriage between Mary and St. Joseph, First of all, it was not a sacrament because Jesus had not yet elevated to the level of a sacrament. It was a natural bond. They were married in the eyes of the Jewish uh, religion, the Hebrew faith, and they were certainly husband and wife um, in, in the eyes of God as well. Now, because they did not have conjugal relations, you know, Mary and Joseph were not intimate, did not lessen their marital bond. Um, even today, um, there's instances where a couple um, can promise to live an abstinent life and still be married in the eyes of God and the church. So it did not affect the the validity uh, or the natural bond that exists uh, between them. If this were post-Christian era uh, type of situation, it would still be considered a a valid bond. Uh, The sacrament can only exist between baptized person. So again, Mary and Joseph were not in a sacramental marriage, but they were in a very natural one by the officials of the, of the temple there. And they both committed themselves completely and totally to each other. So the openness to conjugal intimacy uh, is normally required, but in, in some certain cases it can be uh, dispensed. And certainly in this case, because Mary, we believe, took also a, a vow of virginity as well. Straight ahead, we'll hear from Paul in St. Louis, Missouri. Mark driving through the great state of Mississippi, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. If you'd like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. That's 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 
205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Father John, you have recently uh, suffered a loss in the family. Yeah, my cousin uh, Marge Krodzinski, obviously on my mother's side of the family, was my mother's sister's daughter who just died uh, on Friday from... uh, a long illness, uh, so I just ask for the people pray for the repose of her soul, and we will certainly keep that in mind for sure. Uh, next up is Paul. He is a first-time caller in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Paul, thanks for holding through the break. You're on with Father John. Okay, very good, uh, Father John. Yeah, it might sound like a silly question, but I've heard this all my life. You know, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid the price. Uh, first, it by dying on the cross, I would like to know, and I, do, I do believe in the Trinity, you know, the God, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and all that. Uh, who did he pay? Did he pay himself? Who did, who did he pay? It says he paid, paid the price. You know, I, I'd like to know. Okay. No, that's, that's not a, a silly question. That's a good one. In fact, it's one that we uh, address when we teach the seminarians Christology. Um, Jesus as the God-man, he's divine and he's human. As the God-man, he paid the price to God, the Father, uh, being that he was both human and divine. Uh, certainly, as divinity, he's able to do that, that it's, uh, it's efficacious and it's, he's able to affect the, the act of redemption. But it's in his humanity that he's able to sacrifice and make that payment, so to speak, uh, of that ultimate sacrifice, because as God, he can't die. But as man, he does. And as man, as one of us, we're, man is the one who offended God, So, but man cannot redeem himself. So Jesus, who is both God and man, is able to uh, accomplish that. So he is, the Son is offering himself on behalf of all of us to the Father. Thanks, Paul. We appreciate the question. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Mark. He is another first-time caller driving through the great state of Mississippi, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mark, you are on with Father Trujillo. Yes, my question is, um, you choose to be cremated. Do your ashes have to be kept in a cemetery or in a mausoleum, or can they be, for instance, buried in the woods somewhere, as long as they're kept together? I understand they can't be scattered, like you can't scatter them across the ocean, but if they're kept together, can they be like buried in this special place that this person, for instance, really likes? Okay. 
Well, I must say that's an interesting question because obviously the the caller is correct. The ashes cannot be scattered, but the person needs to be buried intact, either in the ground or at sea. Um, Since you can be buried at sea, uh, and that's not considered hallowed ground, I don't think there's any explicit prohibition to be buried uh, outside. But the issue is the, the danger of someone unearthing that because if you go out in the woods and bury uh, cremains even in a container, it could be up by an animal or a human being or let's say that piece of property is eventually sold and they're going to build a house and you know we're not talking about poltergeist or anything like that <laughs> people coming and scaring you but um, because of the danger of the ashes being um, removed and you know being discarded because I don't think people would even know what it was if they dug it up we we highly urge and recommend that people do have the ashes uh cremains buried in at a cemetery or but again I, I i don't think there's an absolute prohibition to being buried in the woods as you said but i w- it would have to be private property and then you'd have to be somehow ensure by putting some kind of marker there that here lies so-and-so so that, you know, people just don't indiscriminately unearth it, and then, you know, it may be um, what we would call desecrated. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Uh, next up is Ben, a first-time listener in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Ben, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Hello, brothers. Hope you're all having a great day. My question was, or is, on the saints. Why is it that the Roman Catholics, they pray on the saints? Why is that we pray to the saints? That's right. Okay. Well, when we pray to the saints, we're merely asking for their prayers. Um, We are forbidden to uh, worship anyone but God. That's the first commandment. And yet, we can ask for their intercessory prayer in the same way I would ask a living person for their intercessory prayer. So if I was going to have my appendix taken out tomorrow, and I said to, say, our caller, could you pray for me? I wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't be offensive. It wouldn't be a, uh, in any way seen as pushing God out of the way because if I ask you to pray for me, we're both praying to the same God. You could say, well, uh, well, no, you pray to God yourself. Well, technically that's correct, but I am not forbidden to ask you. In fact, it's a good Christian practice to ask for other people to pray for each other. And that's all we're doing with the saints. We're not worshiping them, but we're giving them honor in the same way we say, honor your father and mother. And when we ask for prayers, St. Paul asked for the Corinthians to pray for him. Uh, he prayed for them. So intercessory prayer is what's going on when we uh, pray to the saints. Prayer is a, is merely communicating, have a conversation. One form of prayer is adoration, and we only give that to God. But intercessory prayer or petitionary prayer, we could certainly address to the saints because as immortal souls that they are uh, we certainly believe that you know we still they love us we love them the bonds of 
love are not unraveled at death, as we're told in Scripture. So uh, praying to the saints is not worship or adoration. It's merely asking for their uh, assistance. Uh, thank you, Ben. We appreciate that question today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next stop is Hazleton, Pennsylvania. Dominic is another first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dominic, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Hello, Father. How are you today? My question to you, Father, is about the chaplet of the Divine Mercy, which I'm a firm believer in. And at the end of the prayer for to St. Faustina, it says, if someone is dying, uh, our Lord will be there. And if the person does pass, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will call in front of his Father, not as a just judge, but as a merciful Savior. Well, if a person says it every day and believes truly in the prayer, does that still go with him at the end when his time is up? that our Lord still accepts that as him saying it instead of someone else? Uh, yeah, um, God is merciful and just, and it extends to everybody. So even if someone on a particular day that they died didn't pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet, uh, God would still be merciful as well as just. And uh, it's just that when you pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet, uh, you have the reassurance that God will not forget uh, that you're, you were faithful to that. But uh, it's not like the Lord's just waiting for a loophole to occur that, oh, he missed it today, or you only did it five times instead of six times. Uh, it, it's not a mechanical, technical type of thing. It's one's disposition. Uh, and even those who don't pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet, God is still going to be merciful to them. But God's going to give... Uh, extra graces and blessings to those who are receptive and cooperate uh, with that whole mystery of divine mercy. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Stephen in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Stephen, you are on with Father Tregilio. Hello. Hi, Stephen. What's your question um, today? Well, my question is this. Um, back in the time of Jesus walking the, walking the earth, um, their alphabet didn't have a J in it. And they called him Yeshua, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and I was wondering, are you actually praying to Jesus if you're not calling him by his actual name. Okay, well, no, that's that's a fair question, and because uh, certainly Jesus, that's uh, uh, an, an English um, translation that we have here. In the Latin, is Jesus, all right, and Yeshua uh, in Hebrew. Um, it's the person that the name represents. Okay, and in the same way, you know, if when I'm in Italy and they say Giovanni, uh, that's John in Italian. Uh, it's addressed to me, even though I, I, I was, you know, I was baptized and my birth certificate, my driver's license, my passport says John. You can still call me Giovanni. Uh, you can call me <laughs> any number of things. Uh, 
So when we pray to Jesus, we're praying to the person. Uh, the name itself, obviously, at the name of Jesus, you know, we bow our heads. But in any of its if, of its forms, whether it's Hebrew, Latin, Greek, Italian, Polish, or and so forth. Giovanni is probably something you didn't care to hear when you were growing up, huh? That probably didn't mean good things. Well, it meant that my my Italian grandmother was after me, and I was in trouble. <laughs> That's what I was getting at. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Uh, Mary is another first-time caller. She's in Fort Scott, Kansas, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Mary, welcome to the program. You're on with Father John. Thank you so much. Father John, I'm... Um a new convert to the Catholic religion as of last Easter at the vigil. And in doing all of my prayers, I'm just a little confused. On In the Hail Mary, the second verse, it says, Hail Mary, Mother of God. But I thought, from what I've read, she's the Mother of Jesus. So I'm a little confused there. And then also... From what I've read and what I understand, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one, yet we have different prayers to each. So I just wanted a little clarification, if you would so offer that to me. Okay, and congratulations on coming into the church. We're very happy uh, that you came in last Easter. Um, what you talk about is beautifully... Uh, addressed at the Council of Ephesus uh, around 350 uh, A.D., um, there was um, a man named Nestorius who said you can only call Mary the mother of Christ, but the the, the Catholic Church uh, and the Orthodox Church make it clear that we can call Mary the mother of God because Jesus is both God and man. And though even though Mary only gave Jesus his human nature, in the same way, your mother and my mother only gave us our physical body. God gave us a soul. You wouldn't say to your mom on Mother's Day, Happy Mother's Day to the woman who gave me my physical body. She gave birth to the whole the whole being came out of her womb on the day you were born. In the same way, Mary gave birth to the one Christ. He is God and man. In his divinity, he existed from all eternity. In his humanity, he had a beginning in time when he was conceived uh, in his mother's womb. So when we use that phrase, which, by the way, was used by Elizabeth, St. Elizabeth, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, when Mary comes to visit, called the Visitation, uh, and Mary v goes into the room, and, and Elizabeth says, Who am I that the mother of my Lord? And when you look at the, the Greek and the Hebrew, she actually is saying, Who am I that the mother of God should come to me? So Mary's title as mother of God is merely affirming that her son is the son of God. Her son is divine. She did not give him his divinity, but neither did my mother give me my immortal soul. But my mother was truly my mother. I would not take that away from her, nor would she allow me to do such. So it's a title, but it also affirms a reality. And so we could call her uh, the mother of God. And it's, way by, it's by way of, of analogy that we could do that. And I forget what the second part of the question was. Um, I don't recall. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one. Oh, okay, yet yes. we have yes. individual prayers for each. Yes. 
Um, we call that appropriation because our our finite minds cannot wrap itself around the infinity of God. And so it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, but one God. As I mentioned in a previous uh, question, uh, all three persons are equal. They share the same divine intellect, the same divine will. But we have to ascribe different things to each person. So we say God the Father created, God the Son redeemed, God the Holy Spirit sanctifies. Uh, when we pray, we can pray directly to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One is all the all three are present. So it's not that when God was creating the world in, in the book of Genesis, the other two were on a day off. And it doesn't mean that God the Son was by himself in his divinity. All three persons are always present to each other. It's just that our minds, we have a difficulty wrapping ourselves around because the Trinity is the most awesome mystery in the universe. Not even the angels can comprehend it. And yet we can try. And so by um, addressing one person of the Trinity, we're not denying the other two. We have to always remember, though, where the Father is, there is the Son, and there is the Holy Spirit. Uh, tonight at 9 Eastern Time, EWTN News Nightly. Join Tracy Sable for the Catholic News Perspective on top stories and reports from around the world. That's EWTN News Nightly with Tracy Sable. Weeknights, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Next up is Dan in the great state of Colorado, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dan, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, Father John. Um, my question is, uh, it was actually brought up by my oldest son. Uh, he asked me, he posed a question to me, who was the second female in the Garden of Eden? Because uh, according to the book of Enoch, which I do have a copy of, I've never read, uh, it's not included, you know, the book's not included or part of the Bible. So I didn't have an answer for him because I never heard that before. So that's my question. Okay. Well, you you did touch on an important point. Uh, The book of Enoch is not part of sacred scripture, so it does not have the guarantee of inspiration, infallibility, or inerrancy. Um, The book of Enoch refers to another woman named Lilith. Uh, That's considered, um, you know, not part of sacred scripture or sacred tradition. So the fact that that, that document exists or that there were some people who believed that there was this other woman, whether she was before Eve or after Eve. Uh, It's certainly not part of the Judeo-Christian religion, but we do have these apocryphal um, uh, documents in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament that are not considered inspired and not considered sacred texts. Now, some of those, like the Proto-Evangelium of St. James, it's considered um, accurate because it describes Mary's parents, Joachim and Anne. But you have other ones like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene that are considered Gnostic and you know made up by uh, some heretics in, in the later centuries. Uh, the Book of Enoch, again, uh, we have people referring to it, but the, the church considered it an inspired text. So... There's no credibility of, of that those aspects there. Plus, it makes no sense that this other woman, if she had existed, why isn't why isn't it consistent? Why wouldn't have Jesus referred to her? 
uh, why isn't that mentioned in any of the sacred text itself? You you see nowhere in the Bible itself, in the canon of Scripture, references uh, to this Lilith. You only see it mentioned in the book of Enoch, which is not part of the Bible. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. David is in Billings, Montana, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. David, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Question. When John the Baptist says something like, I don't know this man, but I know the one who sent him, can you please give me some knowledge on what the word man means and who is the one that sent him? Okay. Um, Well, the man, Jesus, is often called the Son of Man, uh, because he is the one who's going to redeem mankind. He is, um, because of the incarnation, the union of divinity and humanity in the one person of Christ. We call that the hypostatic union. Uh, Jesus, as man, will die uh, for us. As God, he will redeem us. And so what John the Baptist is affirming is that Jesus is that unique one soul mediator between God and man because he is both from heaven and earth. And therefore, he can affect uh, our salvation. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We still have time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Kevin's a first-time caller right here in Birmingham, Alabama, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Um, Kevin, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Yeah, being a non-Catholic, I always had a question referring to Matthew 23 9, where it says, Do not call a man on earth your father, for your father is in heaven. Okay, uh, that, that's a very common question. Uh, look at the text itself, uh, especially in the Greek in which it was written. It says, Call no man father. Call no one. So it's not just, you know, um, in a particular aspect, it says, Call no one. And obviously, we don't follow that because when you're filling out a form, uh, it, the, one of the questions is, you know, your mother and your father. And if we were strictly obligated to take that only literally, I would have to say as a Christian, I can't answer that because, or I have to put only God. Obviously, when you see the word question, who is your father, you put your dad's name there. Uh, we're not repudiating the unique uh, relationship that we have with God the Father any more than when we say George Washington is the father of our country. So when you call a priest father, um, it's this idea of this paternity that exists. The priest acts in the person of Christ. It's a spiritual fatherhood, but it comes from the role of God. The same way I would look at my natural father, my dad, I had no trouble seeing or calling him my father because he is an expression of the fatherhood of God. This we say to the seminarians here who are, God willing, going to be future priests, you have to cultivate this spiritual fatherhood, not that you replace God the Father, but that you are a reflection of God the Father in the same way that a dad is to be a reflection of God the Father who is uh, to his children. So we take that uh, text faithfully. We just don't interpret it only literally because in the, if that were the case, then I'd have to also interpret literally when Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Uh, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
there's certainly been things that we've looked at we shouldn't have or we've taken things that we that weren't ours and we've never advocated uh, amputating uh, limbs, although that's what the text says. So we have to always look at the text, take it in context, and interpret it faithfully, not just literally. Uh, Bailey would like to know, how do you interpret the extremely long lifespans recorded in the book of Genesis? Well, first of all, um, there was not as many diseases back then. <laughs> Certainly, uh, life was a bit different. Um, we don't have to, again, we don't have to take it literally that that was a chronological computation. Certainly, that they lived longer lives. Uh, life was much different. Uh, even though we could say, from our comparison, people today live longer than people did 100 or years ago uh, because health has improved. But also, the environment has changed so much that thousands of years ago, people could have lived much longer. Uh, we don't want to look at it only from a chronological standpoint that Moses lived precisely these many years. But I think it, it, certainly God could have extended anyone's lifeline and um, you know science does not say that it's impossible for someone to live uh, that long a time but we should be caught up in the in the details you know was it 426 was it 612 uh, the fact is that you know uh, human beings uh, we're not limited to a particular span as as we because even today you know our lifespans obviously are much different uh, than the uh, immediate past, but from the remote past, it could have been much different that they live much longer. Well, my apologies to RC in Garden City, Idaho, Ginger in the panhandle of Florida, but we are flat out of time. On behalf of our host, actually, Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Certainly. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. Now, on behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, and our call screener, Matt Kubensky, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're back at it tomorrow talking faith, family, and fellowship on Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Benesis. Until we get together then, God bless. <laughs>